Darth Vader, Yoda, Luke, Leia, and Han, icons from a galaxy far, far away with escalating bounties on their heads. That would even turn the helmet of mercenary Boba Fett. Seattle-based software development manager Gus Lopez says the fanaticism begins with fans who were drawn to a new kind of film a generation ago. I think people forget this now because so many blockbusters have copied it. It was really revolutionary at the time that somebody would go into this genre of film with the intensity and the expenditure that they did and, and just produce something so different than anybody had ever seen. And I think it just really hit me at the time and then it just mapped over into collecting and that's kind of how I got going on it. Collector, be warned. Serious collectors will travel to the ends of the earth, well, Tunisia at least, in search of elusive items left on location while shooting the first Star Wars. Pam and I bought plane tickets, just flew out to Tunisia and spent a few weeks just scouring the country. And so uh, we found just incredible stuff. From the junkyards of Tunisia to the closeout bins at the local five and dime store, there are Star Wars collectibles in every price range for the buyer who has become smitten with the romance of this enduring intergalactic odyssey. I will frequently get people coming to me going, I want to buy the high-end things, I want to buy the really unusual stuff, and what I'll advise them is take your time, there is so much of that stuff out there, just find what you really love. Points is Jason and Escape. And before we get started here today, as you know, there's the there's the big the actor strike and the writer strike going on in Hollywood right now. We're still doing episodes. We're putting this out right in the beginning, but we're we're pivoting a little bit. We're standing with the the folks striking to get fair fair treatment and fair pay. We're standing with them, but we're not going to be talking about while the strike is going on, any kind of scripted material. So we're not going to be talking about directly talking about movies or shows. So what are we going to do then? Right? So this, I gave, this gives us an opportunity to explore our, our other great passion, right? Yeah. We've been working on this a long time for a long time. And we have been kind of nervous about sharing it with everyone because it's, it's kind of personal to us. It's very close to our hearts, banjo and whistling. Yes, the the classic combo. So what so what we have here is Gabe. You've figured out many John Williams classic hits on banjo, and you're going to play. We're we're going to do this for an hour, and then I'm going to whistle along to it. We've been rehearsing this. Yes, we're on. Just I think we're on to something. 
it's it's in well, listen we're pivoting people we're pivoting we're 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 doing something a little different but listen this is like i said this is this is emotional for us we may have to stop and cry of just how much this means to us so i i think we've just got to get started here right like let's do it let's do it you got your banjo out gabe i i got it all tuned up okay great okay here we go one and a two and a three and a Wait, what's happening? Uh, yeah, hey, it's it's Tom Spina. I I, uh, I heard your audience stop and cry, <laughs> and uh, I felt I should I, I should probably interject. I have no idea what's going on. I I've not been privy to any of the prior conversation, but I'm pretty sure whatever it is needs to stop. So, uh, with that in mind, I'm just going to take over. I, I've got my friend Gus Lopez with me. He's a, a super collector. Uh, Gus, would you say hi? Hey, everybody. Hey, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Thank you so much, Gus. I feel like you're really going to save the day here. Well, <laughs> oh, well, I hope you don't rest uh, too much on that. But yeah, I'll do my best. <laughs> if Gus starts playing a banjo, I'm gonna, I'm out. That's it. <laughs> but Tom, what if the banjo had a whammy bar on it? Would that be okay? I mean, yeah, maybe in a Bavarian cheese whistle, uh, as, as Eddie used to say. <laughs> I, I feel like I walked into deliverance here. That's <laughs> like, like some sort of weird 80s crossed, you know, it's like, like a lime green banjo with a big whammy bar and lots of hairspray. Gus is just going to be like, that's it. Okay, good, thank, good night, guys. I'm out. I got, I've got stuff to do. <laughs> Great talking to you. Good night. If only he was here for the very real Star Wars feet episode you guys pulled me into. You didn't have to say yes, Tom. I'll always bring that up. We gave you an out. You could have just said no, but you didn't. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a trooper. I'm here for you guys. No, so, you know, what we figured here is, look, so uh, the, the strike thing, standing solidarity with folks, that's all, you know, absolutely fantastic. And the, the great thing about Star Wars is there's so many facets to it. And, and for so many years, Star Wars existed through collecting. I mean, you, especially in the early 80s, you know, you couldn't go and see the movies all the time. You didn't have them on VHS. We didn't have VHS. Um, you know, at best, maybe you had a little short clip of it on an eight millimeter uh, little reel that you could run or something like that. And so how did you relive the movies? You relived it with the toys and then... As you got older and maybe made a little more money, folks like uh, Gus and I started to get better toys. Um, and I, I think collecting and in particular prop collecting are just really, really exciting and interesting things. And I think it's stuff that uh, could be explored and maybe, you know, fill in some of this dark time. Yeah. And before we get started, I just want to say, Gus, like from, I mean, I I know you as one of the greatest biggest star wars collectors out there and of course from all your work with the collecting track at star wars celebration the amazing panels at the the collecting tracks just so yeah we are just so happy you finally make it joining us here on blast points it's so great oh yeah yeah happy to be on i mean yeah the collecting track something i've been leading since 99 since the first celebration and every celebration since has been fun to do it and it's grown a lot and it's been a big deal you know to get an official part of the program at celebration about collecting and really you know spread you know the knowledge and the love of collecting but you know as tom sort of mentioned yeah i mean 
with prop prop collecting is sort of like the toys <laughs> they aren't the things you sort of day one of collecting jump into to start collecting but it's sort of the dream as a kid is like can i own something from the movies and so uh both tom and i over the years then you develop your collecting to a point where you're starting to own things from the actual movies which is for me the most exciting area of collecting of all even though there are a lot of other categories that really excite me about collecting I think it's funny because I, I don't, you know, I totally agree with you about props being sort of that. I mean, I hate to call it the ultimate because there, there's so much fun in, especially. I mean, you do a lot of stuff uh, uh, collecting in terms of like unproduced prototypes, which to me is super exciting. I especially, you know, the Kenner stuff, the micro collection stuff. That stuff drives me bananas. I love it, but I still, for whatever reason, I, I, you know. Is it just, what do you think it is that makes props, you know, on that next level? It always seems to be people's ultimate. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's different for different people. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, many collectibles, it's really about the connection to, you know, whatever the uh, content is. So in the Star Wars case, it's movies. And it's a way to really connect with the movies, right? So, like, even the action figures sort of play that role. But to, you know, to have, like, a costume or a special effects model or a prop from those movies, it's just – it's that connection. It's that nostalgia for it. I mean, there's also an incredible thrill of the hunt that comes, you know, which is a big factor in collecting often. And I think props has one of the most challenging hunts <laughs> you can sign up for, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure, in terms of – how to find stuff, but then authenticating stuff. It you know because some of these pieces have high price points now. That of course means all the shysters figure that out, and so you have that problem of a lot of fake stuff that enters. So um, it's a challenging area, but it's the thrill of the hunts intense. So I think those are the big factors. I mean, talk about like prop pieces are just like you know when you can you can bring the layperson who doesn't really know Star Wars into your home and show them a piece from the movie. And it will have an impact. Not that I collect for that reason, but it's it's really amazing, that connection. Whereas sometimes with a toy prototype, it's a little harder. You need sort of context like, well, this, you know, but with that action figure, it's rocket firing and they had this famous bail-away offer. And, you know, and then by, you've lost them after like five minutes of explaining that. <laughs> it's just like you show Boba Fett's backpack from Return of the Jedi and they're like, damn, that's an awesome piece. It really is just like the most direct connection to the movie out there like there is it's it's a straight line and and yeah i mean when you get the right piece we so one of the things uh jason and gabe we like to uh, talk about is the mom test it's sort of like what was the old the hollywood saying like you know it's like oh all right kid if you got a script that you can tell me in a paragraph you got a hit if you can tell me it in a sentence you got a blockbuster like to me props it's like if you have something you have to explain how it was used in the movie like that's still pretty cool if you have something someone's mom walks into the room and goes like oh that's darth vader like okay that's it you win you know you've passed the mom test that's as good as it gets yeah and one thing i'd add is i think the mom test is a is an interesting you know sort of litmus test for prop collecting in general I, the nice thing about star wars is that I think to some degree you can relax the mom test in that there's always there's a significant number of people out there who really know Star Wars. So for example, I have like a Best Bespin security guard costume, you know, the, the the jacket and the slacks. And uh, I don't think my mom would be able to pick that out. <laughs> 
Maybe your mom, but you know, yeah. But any Star Wars fan knows exactly what it is. You know, like it, it's not like a Darth Vader costume or something, but. But like you, you do get a lot of people who've seen Star Wars and go, "Oh my God, that's a Bespin security guard costume." You know, uh, so the I think the whereas in a more obscure film, it's a little it's a little harder, right? Like uh, like there aren't there isn't like this huge fan base of not to pick on the movie, but like crawl, like say you know <laughs> you have to sort of explain to people. Remember that movie in the eighties? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Just remember that guy that was in prison in Tango and Cash? This was his cellmate's shirt, you know? Like, yeah, yeah that's, exactly. You're not going to get as much out of that as the Bespin security guard. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And, and I mean, we've even found this uh, to very slyly work my companies into this with Regal Robot. You know, we're doing replicas of the concept maquettes from Return of the Jedi. There's not a lot of movies you can do that sort of thing for. Like, here's the weird looking Bib Fortuna, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, that's a weird thing for a company to put out. Um, And the fact that you can do that just shows like Star Wars has that deep bench and you have fans that love it to such a degree that you can, you can dig deeper in it. And it's amazing. I, well, I guess like, so uh, Gabe and Jason, what would you say the percentage of Star Wars props are, let's say, you know, in the Lucasfilm archives in the, at, at Skywalker Ranch versus out in the hands of the public? 60% Lucasfilm, 40% public. I would agree with that. And it's like I had always heard the thing that this like the New Hope stuff it was more out there because there was there wasn't like the archive yet and stuff. But so yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Gabe probably. Gus, what what's your take on that? Well, I think yeah, I think Jason gave actually have both great points, which is that it varies by movie, and you know I, I you know I've never seen the archives in person. I've seen their exhibits and I've seen video of the archives, so. It's. I've heard stories though of bins. You know, they'll have of like helmets from you know a certain kind of hell. Like there's some things they have in quantity. But if I were to guess, I I yeah I'd probably say it's a guess. And about a third is Lucasfilm archives. I'd say it really varies a lot by movie too. The prequel movies they're going to have a very high percentage. And then the, the early original trilogy, they're going to have a very low percentage of what's out there. So I would say it blends out to maybe a third of what's out there. I don't know, Tom, if you have a good gauge on it uh, or have seen the archives firsthand to have a, a handle on it. Tom, did you count everything in the archive? I, yes, every time I go, I uh, I just count it obsessively. Oh, gosh. I, I'll tell you, it is it is an overwhelming place. They They definitely have a very high volume of material. Um, I think what Gus has pointed out in terms of the and and well, what Jason rightly initially pointed out is that it it is a big difference by movie, and it, it I would say it probably goes a New Hope the least amount of stuff, Empire the second least, then you know Return of the Jedi a really really good amount of it, and then prequels you know not all of it but a lot of it. But I think it's it's the sort of thing where I think a lot of average fans, you know, maybe who haven't dove in, uh, dived into this so deeply, dived, dove, whatever, went head first into this the way that we do. The average people out there probably think, oh, well, George Lucas has all of this stuff, you know, or Lucasfilm owns all of this stuff. None of it's in private hands. I'm always just surprised, not just at the quantity of stuff that's out in private hands, but really the quality of 
the stuff that's in private hands and some of the collections out there, you know, Gus is obviously, you know, Gus has an absolutely amazing collection and, and maybe this is a great intro for us to start talking about that. But there's, you know, in addition to Gus, there are so many people out there that have really just amazing collections of stuff from Star Wars. And I'm, I'm always impressed by just what's made it out. Yeah. It's, and it's, and the great thing about this area of collecting, there's no like, I mean, even the Lucasfilm archives definitely stands out as the most significant collection of the stuff. Uh, there's no one collection that has ev- like everything comprehensive. I mean, a lot of the stuff is one of a kind, right? So, so in different collections, you know, there's unique stuff that sits in different collections. There's, there's, there's obviously a few things they've made multiples of and so on. I mean, most props, they do make multiples of them. So they get, there's multiples that get in circulation, but the fun thing about prop collecting is you can't own it all. <laughs> it's actually a good, a good positive thing because you'd go crazy if you tried to. And uh, you can't own it all. You can appreciate a lot of other collections because there's no way you're going to own it all. And and but, but just to even find stuff for yourself is so exciting. And um, But it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about too because I think oftentimes when we talk about prop collecting, people think of – you know, and we should we should definitely. I'm happy to share and talk about some major pieces I have and others have. You know, but you know, a lot of times you jump ahead to like the biggest pieces, and you're like, oh my god! And so the collector hearing it is like, well, that's unreachable. You got lucky 15 years ago, blah blah blah. You know, it's hard to connect. But the reality is, there's a lot of stuff, and a lot of it's like lower price points. And that's how I got started in it. It wasn't. I wasn't you know, splurging and swinging for the fences on stuff. It was smaller prop pieces that sort of were my gateway drug into actually other things were the gateway drug, but (laughs) (laughs) the doses, I guess I was taking early on and (laughs) before the addiction really set in and, uh, and yeah. And so there's, there is, there is a big range, I guess, in terms of price point. And I think a lot of people can collect this. And so even if you hear people like us share about these amazing pieces, you know, that's after years of doing this. And, and, you know, I think others can do that as well, but it's not, don't, don't expect to just jump in day one and collect, you know, uh, a stormtrooper helmet from a movie. I mean, that's a a big deal (laughs) to obtain. Yeah. No. And I I think that's a point that we always try and stress that when we do the panels at, at celebration, when we do the, the props collecting panel, which, and I'll, I'll echo Jason and Gabe. I mean, what you guys have all built on those, uh, those collecting panels is just so fun. And the degree of, uh, not even just the depth of it all is just awesome. And I think that's, I, I think that just goes to your earlier point about, you know, Star Wars fans and how hip they are to all the details. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we, we try to not hold back on like, you know, we, we do advanced topics, but do it in a way where you can explain it to people, but like not sort of water down every topic, like really get into, uh, things that are of interest to people. Uh, but yeah, no, it's fun to do that. And I, I believe collecting is a social hobby. I mean, there are collectors and this happens in prop collecting, right? Who just, you have black hole collections you hear about, you know, the, the people that collect privately and have this like secret lair where all the stuff goes and no one <laughs> ever sees it. And to me, it's like the most, it's sort of depressing when you hear stories about stuff like that. Like, and, uh, I like to share my collection, but I also like to sh- talk about collecting, meet other collectors, share information. And there are some collectors that don't think that way. They think in terms of like hoarding information and keeping everything secret. And it's always, it's kind of weird to me. Cause I, I feel like it is, it, it is essentially a, a social hobby. Well, how many, I mean, you know, I just think about the number of friends I've made just through the hobby in the years, even going back to replica prop collecting in the RPF late nineties, you know, that 
it bonded so many of us, you know, oh, yeah. eternally at this point, it seems. Um, but, you know, I wonder if in the in the screen use collecting, you know, the idea that you can't own it all, in a way that almost forces you to make friends with folks, you know, it's like there's there's no sense in being end all be all competition to the to the the bloody end if there's no way to own it all. So let's just, you know, own what we can and enjoy the hell out of it in everybody else's collections. And and along the way, you know, you wind up making great friends. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's I think it helps to some degree, a competitiveness angle that I think other areas of Star Wars collecting, like if people, because I know when people try to, and I know in some categories, I do try to be a completist and, and, and it can get very competitive when you have, you know, multiple people going after that piece that they feel they need to fill a hole with prop collecting. It's, it's a lot harder to do that. And people are, are genuinely, I mean, I, I find the vast majority of prop collectors really help each other out and not, are not competitive with each other. I mean, there's certainly bidding wars and things that go on, but like by and large, I find Star Wars prop collecting is very healthy. Some of my prop collecting friends who collect for other films say it's not always so much that case in other films, but for Star Wars, it's generally a good set of friends that all cooperate on a lot of, a lot of these uh, when things come up. Well, I know you and I have, have cooperated a few times in the past and, and it's brought great things into each of our collections and, and, uh, and it and it all comes down to like, hey, if we could easily own it all, we could just annihilate each other in an auction or something like that. But I'm I'm really glad it went the other way. <laughs> totally. Or you know, you get a situation where somebody who just has like lukewarm interest in a piece wins it, but there's this person that really it fits in their collection. It's their dream, and and you know, you weren't aware of it if you didn't have that conversation. You know, like like I'm I'm willing to back off if it's like something that like really fits in that person's collection. If I have things close to it, you know, I, I, I'll have a discussion with them. But, you know, also like, you know, sharing where to shop or, you know, sharing reference photos. There's lots of other ways to help out other other prop collectors. The, the reference photos is such a huge thing too, because, um, and I, I gotta say, I actually like the direction this conversation has wound up taking us because the idea of just like, hey, let's just talk about stuff we own is, you know, okay, f- fun, but I, I love exploring this side of it all. But the, to the, you know, the reference thing is so key in the hobby, right? Like, you know, the whole point is, how do you know it's real? How do you know it's the one from the movie? We, I, I think that's probably one of the things that attracts me the most about the hobby is the reference side of it. I mean, you know, Jace, Jason and Gabe um, uh, discovered me through, you know, the in-depth cantina panels we did, which were like, you know, just unbelievable types of reference that were done. And then they joined me the last celebration for the, the return of the Jedi thing. And the three of us did unbelievable reference on that, you know, and, and deep dives. And like with props, it's all that all the time. You're just constantly, when am I going to turn up that one behind the scenes photo I've never seen before that shows the other side of this prop and the marking on it that I've been trying to match up or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And there's pieces people pick up that, they weren't able to quote unquote screen match it until later. And, but then they got a reference photo later and, and we should probably talk about the idea of screen matching. Like there's a number of ways to authenticate a prop. To me, the top standard is screen matching. So that's where there are uh, details and artifacts on the item that closely match, uh, exactly match what's on screen in such a way that it'd be impossible for somebody 
to fake it. It would you would have to know so much about you, you. You'd have to actually have the original in your hands, and it's 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 almost impossible to fake basically a screen match thing. And so it's sort of the st- the high standard. There's other ways to uh, authenticate a, a piece. Um, you know, there's there's you know paperwork that's filed with um, you know with their archives. There are you know people that were gifted things from movies. There's a bunch of stuff, and there's provenance, obviously, which is common in like fine art and other kinds of collectibles where you have the ownership chain. But the thing is that you get into this philosophical thing. I'm, I'm curious, Tom, your perspective on this. But like, I remember a thread with some friends years ago about this topic, and if you put screen matching aside and you say, what are the other forms of authentication? You go, well, unless you were there when they filmed the scene that after the scene, they handed you the prop and that, you know, that scene made it to the movie. You really can't prove screen. use (laughs) Like other than screen matching, you know, it's a probabilistic thing is, so I sort of, the way I wrap my head around it is a probabilistic thing. But you want a high, high confidence it was used in filming. And, and you can do that. You can get like, you know, uh, you know, I mentioned the Stormtrooper helmet I have. I got it from it was in, in the Profiles in History auction. It was auctioned by Dickie Beer, who was a stuntman in Return of the Jedi. He has this fascinating story about how he ended up keeping it after Return of the Jedi. I mean, he it's, you know, just high, high. And you just then you take the helmet and you compare it to known originals it's a hero you know what we call a hero helmet so it's detailed and has the bubble eyes and everything about it matches up it matches known originals it has a, a reliable source who got it directly from the movie so you know in that case it's but it's not it, there are like it isn't a hundred percent right it's a really arbitrarily high probability it was used on screen but until i can match it to a scene which actually is still possible because he was in a bunch of scenes and i have not yet been able to match it then you know we don't know for sure it made it on screen, but in all likelihood he was in a ton of scenes with the helmet, so he's probably on screen wearing it. And and at at the very least, you can tie it to the production, which ultimately you know most quote screen used props. The reality is all you can say is that it was something made for the production of the film, and now it is in your collection. Yeah, you can say with a con- absolute conviction it was production used, production made, and screen used. You can say probably with high probability in a lot of cases, but but it is an interesting thing because people throw around screen used all the time, like w- without having screen matched. And I sort of think, well, yeah, you sort is screen used, and I say it all the time too. But you know, until <laughs> you screen match it, you really don't know. Like I bought a Wicket spear. There was a in, in an auction. There was a, a, a Wicket spear that went up for auction. I won it. And I didn't screen match it till after I, I got it. And once I got it, I just like took the you know Blu-ray and just went through the whole thing and just screen by scene. I'm like, oh yeah, it matches in like five different places on the on the spear. So I'm like, all right, there's a screen match to Wicked. And it's, as far as I can tell, it's the only Wicked spear that that made it on screen because it matched like every other scene. I, I had another piece like that. Um, we should try mention is. It's kind of a long story, but basically was a guy who was a trucker removed stuff between the studio storage houses and, and New Lucas, and he acquired two pieces. He asked he, his, according to him, you know, he asked George for some pieces for Star Wars, and it was presumably at a time when Star Wars had wrapped up filming and and probably before the release of the film. But anyway, uh, he had, he he got Luke's belt from his uh, Tatooine costume, and. 
you know, at first when I got it, I, oh, at first when he sent me photos, I was like, well, you know, is it original? And I was like, oh my God, this thing matches every scene with that belt. Like, like it was the easiest screen match I've ever seen. Like every single shot had something, it matched in like 50 places. Like it was so awesome. And, and like that belt is loaded with stuff you can match. There's chips, there's weathering, there's distressing on the leather, there's aging, there's nicks and, and you know, uh, bumps and bruises all over it. And like when he's saying screen match, not just like, oh, it's the right type of pouch. Like, no, no, it's that pouch. It has the same wrinkles. It has the same distressing, has the same aging, all of the stuff, all the, the tiniest details match up. And I, I have seen those matches on that, uh, that belt and it's, absolutely stunning <laughs> and that was crazy too because like you when you you know when you screen match a piece you what you usually expect is it matches to some scenes but they make multiples of everything almost everything they'll make multiples of so you'll expect that they'll use multiples in the filming and i just start watching a new hope and you're like oh man it matches every single scene that luke is wearing that belt and what's interesting is i don't know if you knew this but in the promotion as star wars became big and then they did you know, posters of the characters and stuff. The promotional posters they shot after the film, they have a different belt that Mark Hamill has because they don't have the belt anymore. And so I think it was the only belt. I think it's the only belt they had for the costume. I, I think it could be. I've actually, you know, it's funny. So we deal with at at the um, at the studio where we're doing restoration conservation for people. We deal with props from all different films, and I find that. I don't know if it's more often than not, but more often than I expect, even though they make five of something for the movie, they definitely have favorites. And it does seem like when you have uh, a key piece in a film, a lot of times it winds up being the same one over and over and over again. You know, that true hero kind of thing uh, when you're talking about a hero prop, like it, it feels like that happens more often than not uh, to me. Yeah. Like I'll give you an example, like the, um, you know, where they have changed it. Like I have Harrison Ford's Han Solo jacket from Empire Strikes Back is what some refer to as his Bespin jacket. And the, the I know of two out there. I have one and I know another collector has, has one. And I think the other one screen matches, mine definitely screen matches. So mine on a bunch of scenes, I can absolutely screen match it. Um, so it's a case where they probably had two, that, at least two that Harrison Ford was wearing in, in different scenes. Uh, but but mine doesn't match every scene, but it does match quite a few scenes. Uh, I, and and I'm wearing the other one. <laughs> like, so the, the Bespin jacket, when you go about screen matching something like that, what are you looking for? Because I'm not as trained in this. I would look at it and be like, yeah, the, the color looks right. Or, you know, maybe if it's his Hoth coat, who knows? But <laughs> the, the, the fit looks right. So what, what kind of details are you looking for? Like if you get out the Blu-ray and you're searching for that? Great question. Um, yeah, you're actually looking for things even more subtle than the material. You definitely want consistency in that. But, it, you know, actually that's one of the things where you sort of don't expect the match in the sense that, what I found with that jacket is the lighting has a huge impact on how the color comes across on that jacket. So I've seen it in bright lights and in, in dim light, in the, uh, different lighting situations, the color of the texture of the material looks different. No, you're looking for things like the thread pattern on it and where there's imperfections and where there's folds in the pockets and, and things like that, that like nobody would be able to replicate. And so on that jacket, there's actually a lot of tells in really when the stitching and in the folds on it, 
you know, it's funny when I picked it up, I, it was, I got it from a collector, uh, you know, near London. And I went to a show that weekend. I was, I was out there and I had told a couple of people the show, yeah, I just picked this up. So I brought it to the show sort of early before people started showing up just to show it to a few people. And there was, you know, you know, loved it, taking selfies with it and so on. And, you know, we just like talking about it right on the table. Somebody picks up like, you know, a modern Han Bespin action figure and it, it screen matches to that. I mean, like you hold up the action figure, the photo they have from the movie and you're like, oh yeah, there are the phones. Like it absolutely matched that. It was like, wow, like this is amazing. So it was like things like that. It's really the folds, the stitching, the way they cut the material that you look for things that are really unique about it that, um, and, and when you see enough of them, you sort of triangulate like, yep, this is the same one. And sometimes there's other things like paint irregularities. On this case, there aren't like paint irregularities or, or weathering, but on other things, the weathering patterns is often a thing. It's very hard to replicate weathering exactly, exactly the same. So things like that, it varies from prop to prop. Well, and I think the the one thing that I often see that uh, makes me chuckle a little bit is when people start circling you know, things like the seam line from the mold on a piece or cast in detail as like, this is why it matches. And it's like, well, you know, a screen match on, on a mold and cast piece, when you have something like a resin blaster, it's like, no, they're all going to have the same seam line. They're all going to have the same, you know, they all came out of the same mold. What you're looking for are, yeah, it's chips in the paint, it's irregularities in the distressing. It's, and, and a lot of times I find with this stuff, that you don't even see some of the stuff that you're going to screen match until you've got it in your hands. So it really is impossible to fake. But then once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You know? Yeah, like like on the Wicked Spear, I didn't know what I would screen match. But there's like a bump in the wood. There's the patterns of the grain in the wood. There's the way the thing is tied onto the spearhead, you know, it's just like, wow, I wouldn't have thought to look for that, but Hey, that matches, you know, um, on, I talked about, you know, the guy with the, the gut sold me the loop belt. He, the other piece he had was a Tuscan Raider mask from new hope. That one also screen matched because it turns out each Tuscan Raider was unique. The, the aluminum pieces on the, on the face are different there, which you would have thought they would have made them all the same, but they actually are different. And then the, uh, the strap, the bandages are all in a different pattern. So you can screen match the way the bandages stay up. Yep. And the, the leather in the mouth is in a different pattern. The leather around the mouth is a different shape. I, uh, you know, we're actually making our replica Tuscan Raider busts right now. We just finished the first 50. They've got another 20 or so going in the shop. So they're all over the shop and ours we scanned. So this is a perfect example of, of this sort of thing. We went to the archives. We've, we've been very fortunate to get to go there a bunch of times. Uh, one of our research trips, we said, we're going to be working on this Tuscan Raider bus. And they said, okay, here's the Tuscan Raider. You can scan this. So, you know, whatever they give you, you're kind of like, thank you very much. We'll work with that. Even though we knew they had another and we got to see it and everything, but we didn't have the chance to really do the deep dive research on it until after we did that scan. So we did that scan. Then we went back to the studio and we had photos of both of the ones they had, but we only scanned the one. And sure enough, the one we didn't scan is the one that was in all the white backdrop promotional photos, uh, wearing what I call the Bantha Rider robe, which is the outer robe from the Tunisia scenes, but just, they didn't, they didn't have under any of his undergarments, I guess. And they just threw it over him and put the, the, the cummerbund on them there. Yeah. And so immediately we're like, 
okay, but the other one matches all of these pictures. That's the one we got to do. That's the cooler one. So, you know, twist our arms like, oops, oh, I guess we have to go back to Skywalker Ranch now, you know, <laughs> like we needed an excuse. But we went back and we scanned the other one, and that's the one we used as the foundation for our replica. But in doing all of this, we also, you know, we scanned those metal parts. We measured everything with micrometers and stuff, and we we got in there and figured out all the things that make them different. And they're dramatically different. And I know exactly which ones, which one yours uh, uh, matches up to Gus on the uh, on that that wonderful three behind a rock photo. Yeah, 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 and and he's one of the ones that ransacks the land speeder and yes. all that. And uh, and yeah, and it's funny because you you can get down to the, it's that Tuscan. It's it's really wild, but that's a great example. And you know, I guess similar to that, I think uh, at least Tom, you were the first to tell me about it, but I'm sure others knew too. The Greedo the Greedo masks have unique unique patterns on each one of them. Right. And, and you, know, you talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was something that, uh, that turned up when Stuart Freeborn retired and he had one of the Greedo masks still in his, uh, you know, at his, at his home. And it was some of the, it was among the stuff the prop store was helping him find homes for and wound up going to a collector who said he was going to cherish it, cherish it forever, and it was his dream piece, and then it wound up going into Profiles in History like a few months later, and I was very mad. But whatever. I'm over it, except I'm not. So, uh, it, But what, what happened with that was, no, it wasn't, if I recall, it wasn't even listed this way in any of the auctions, and Prop Store didn't even kind of do this at the time, but we went through and we started looking at all these pictures of the Greedo masks, and realized, oh crap, they glued all the warts on individually. And because of that, each one was unique and you could figure it out. And it turned out that that particular one that Stewart had kept was the one that was sent to the US to be turned into the close-up Greedo mask with the functioning mouth and the antenna for Maria de Aragon to wear in the US reshoots, which makes it really, really special. And just a little bit, uh, you know, that's that's one of those like, ooh, that one got away. <laughs> but I believe that wound up with Paul Allen, right? Yeah, that's probably the Paul. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's the Paul Allen one, which, by the way, there was news you know, this week that they the estate has now given all the all you know a lot of his stuff, his music stuff, and his his film stuff, TV and pop culture stuff to the Mopop Museum in Seattle, which is great to see that that collection is going to be you know forever sort of preserved and available to the public. On the other hand, I think a lot of prop collectors were thinking this is going to be the greatest auction of all time if this these up for sale. But uh, I'm glad this stuff's going to be on public display. Similar to Lucas's museum, I'm very excited about that as well. I, I love seeing this stuff in person. I'm I'm very curious to see where that goes. We you know we hear a little bit in in you know being being over there from time to time and and in uh, because the the archives are re- are obviously a big part of what's happening with all of that. But you know it's it's exciting. I'm very curious what it's going to ultimately be. You know everybody's so tight lipped about it all, and it's very hush hush. Um, so it's it's almost a little tantalizing. But I'm I, I think it's going to be pretty amazing. And it is kind of cool, though, that Mopop is, has has now gotten that gift of all those pieces because, you know, as nice as it is, if that was an auction and maybe some of us would grab a piece or two or maybe, hell, at this point, I, you know, I, I feel pretty priced out a lot of times on stuff. Yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine what these things would sell for, too, at this point. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, to know that they're going someplace that, okay, that 
this is going to be available to the public to see. This is like, you know, to me, the next best thing to owning something is to be able to visit. And it's like when it when a, a prop goes up for auction, it's like if I'm not going to get it, if I hear that and, and by the way, most times I am not going to get it. But if if it's something like that, I hear a friend of mine's getting, I'm like, that's amazing. I can't wait to visit. You know, <laughs> like yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and you know, one other thing I would mention in screen match while we're on the, they're on that we got on it on that topic. The um the one uh you know as you you may know like I one of the most significant prop pieces I have was one of the first ones I ever acquired, which was the Death Star model from the first movie, and. It turns out that one is also one that's very, very easy to screen match. Um, you know, when uh, you know, my wife and I were watching, you know, the, the film, you know, recently. You know, we just like sometimes just, we'll freeze the, just freeze it in an arbitrary scene with the Death Star, and then just go over to the model and go, let's see if we can find that spot. And it's like, you know, of course, it matches every single time. You can pick a tiny region of the Death Star on screen and always match it. And when it's lit up, it's even easier to screen match because there's thousands of little holes that they put onto on the surface so when there's a light source the whole surface illuminates in these so you can take like a centimeter by centimeter square and there'll be like dozens of pinholes in that and match it exactly on screen so it's like wow it's like a very very easy model to screen match uh, <laughs> that's insane yeah which most people would think it'd be hard to match it but it's actually pretty easy uh, well yeah and it, it, and that's the sort of thing where it's like yes someone could make and repaint you know, and paint their own Death Star and drill all the holes in it they want, but you're never getting every hole right. You know, there's just no way. And there are photos nobody has seen yet, you know, out in the public that someday are going to turn up and they will definitely match yours, you know, versus when you have something where someone's made a prop based on the, the readily available photos, but then the new photo comes up and it's just like, whoops, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and that's happened before where, yeah, people get updated photos and they realize this thing doesn't exactly match to the what they thought matched or there's something really, uh, yeah, concerning. I, I like that, you know, just the idea that, that these behind-the-scenes photos, we you know, one of the things I've got in my collection is Walrus Man's Blaster, which, you know, not the one that winds up on the floor, which was really Evazon's stunt blaster that then, then got shipped to the U.S. and then shows up on the floor or whatever, but this – is you know the actual UK shoot Walrus Man blaster, and it's one of these things where if if it weren't for Bapti taking photos of these things to show the production, or the production taking those photos of Bapti when they were trying to figure out what guns they were going to use, we'd probably never know this was the right one. But it just so happens in one of the photos they took, the serial number on the gun is showing. And you can match that. So it's just one of those like, oh, okay, that's very fortunate that we had that picture. If I can back it back up to the Death Star for one second. Yeah, you sort of gloss over that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You you said it was one of the one of the first ones you got. So I'm how because the you know, the Death Star, it's kind of a big deal. How yeah. in the how in the world did that happen? And how did the progression from being like a Star Wars collector, I collect stuff, to like, oh my God, I have the Death Star? It's a great question. It's a great question. It, yeah. It, what the, and here's the thing. So, so to, to give some background, like, so I picked it up in 1999 and late 99. The I had known some prop collectors who had Star Wars pieces from the mid 90s on. I, I was already plugged in you know, pretty early to some people who collected props. 
And I was actually turned off by a lot of prop collecting in that era um, for a bunch of reasons. But I, I, I thought, well, you know, it's very expensive. It's very hard to authenticate. You know, you can't own it all. I, you know, I was a student during that time too, so I was on a shoestring budget. So I, you know, I, so it was a kind of thing that I just didn't really. I, and even when I picked up the Death Star, my intent was not to collect props. It was, it. W- I knew there were three guys that that had it for years. They had it for almost a decade, and uh, uh, Todd Franklin, Pat Franklin, and Tim Williams, the three guys, they had preserved it. They had saved it from basically being thrown away, and. Uh, and there's a long story behind it, but I knew they had it. I promoted it on my website. Like I promoted that they had it and said, this is a cool discovery and all that, you know, and I'd also told them privately, if you ever decide to sell it, do let me know. I'd be interested in it, but you know, I get it. It's your pride and joy. I don't want to pry it from your collection, but if you're, if you do get to a place where you want to sell it, let me know. And then some time had passed and they said, you know, we're at a place where we'd like to sell it. And they were very interested in that. It would go to a collector who would keep it, not like, they would not get lost in some random collection overseas or something that they, you know, and I said, look, you could have lifetime visitation rights. If I pick it up, you know, you can always see it. Uh, I'm not going to let go of it. And for me at the time, what it was like, well, I want to own a big piece from Star Wars. And it was weird because I, I was by that point, by 99, as fairly advanced Star Wars collector, but I was a little bit naive in the sense of like thinking, well, you know, I just want to own one big prop piece. But then you step back and go, what can you ever do to top that? Like it's just sort of like you know, it's everything's downhill from there, you know. So it was on a whim, really, that I was like, okay, I want to just you know get a big, big piece like that, and and actually wasn't. And then I had and it wasn't the first piece, but it was near the first piece. I mean, I, in 1998, I went to Tunisia for the first time, so I brought back some props from Tunisia. Those were probably my first prop pieces, and then the Death Star, and then really it was a few years before I really got active into prop collecting. It wasn't until like about 2005 or so that I really started to get very active in prop collecting. But it took me a few years. I knew people who collected. I just wanted to, and for me, what was actually game changing in prop collecting was the people. Like I had mentioned, like in, I knew, I you know, the people I knew were fine. They were fine people. I'm still good friends with them in the 90s. But like a lot of the prop community at the time wasn't i wouldn't say super friendly but once the sort of the generation of people who were kids that grew up with star wars started to collect the props that was for me very game-changing and 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 helped open it up to me uh you know as i saw friends that were grew up with star wars getting into it and it was like wow this is something i can collect too and then i started to sort of say okay i want to pick up other pieces but then you know i look back at the desk and go wow it's kind of lucky and fortunate the timing but i wasn't really trying to build a prop collection at the time and so uh, history shows that Gus came to the party late, barely participated, didn't really get a lot of props, got bored and left. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hardly anything in his collection at this point. Well, hardly anything. I just sort of stopped yeah. right there. Yeah. No, it was just – yeah, and then once I got into it, it was like, you know, I, I was trying to get, you know – uh, just fill in gaps. I want to have representation for every major character. You know, I wanted to collect, collect things from the, at the time the prequels were coming out, prequels and the and the original trilogy. You know, I liked some cool pre, like pre, like if you want to own lightsabers, generally prequel trilogy is where you're you're stuck. You know, because there isn't a whole lot um, from original trilogy out there. There's only a, a handful of like maybe like three lightsabers out there, but. For sequel, for sequel trilogy, prequel trilogy, there's there's some things out there. So, yeah, I would get together like, you know, I have like several lightsabers, and then I would have this blaster case, like this display case that I, mean, I got the idea from the Mopop Museum. They had this like arsenal 
you know, this sort of like armory kind of display of, of special effects of mostly science fiction blasters. I was like, oh, I totally want to do it that way because the Star Wars blasters are so iconic in silhouette, right? You, you just see, oh, that's the Stormtrooper blaster. That's the Rebel blaster. You know, that's the that's the Biker Scout blaster. You just know from when you see those images. So it was like, that was one of the things, like I had originally had blasters on a shelf and nobody cared really. And then you put them in this rack and, and it's like, people are like, wow, that is incredible. More than the sum of its parts, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. More than the sum of the parts, a great way to put it. And then do the similar thing with costumes. Like I have now a room that's just basically mannequins just all around the, all the perimeter of the room and, and mannequin forms and full mannequins of different costumes from the films. And then I have a, a huge display case of masks and helmets. Um, and then some things are in unique display cases like the Death Star. Uh, but you know, and then I have well, one of the things that I have that was interesting was a thing that I think a lot of people didn't think much of. And I know Tom can relate to this with, with like creature hands. Like I have a lot of you know the gloves they make and stuff for the different alien creatures. And, you know, that was one of those things for years. I would have a, I had a few of them. I had them on shelves and people were like, eh, it's nice. But I, I basically went to Ikea, bought a billy case, an Ikea. And then, and then Tom helped with getting the stands for all these hands. And it's basically this billy case packed with uh alien hands like greedo cabe tuscan raider uh duros uh you know i mean all these like uh you know cantina band member you know all these things like it you know in um in a, in a billy case and people a lot of people like go by and go oh my god i never thought of displaying it that way and i knew a, a few collectors got inspired by seeing that like now I can collect the hands. I've seen them all the time, but I never thought, oh, there's a cool way to display it and put them all together. And and then it's, as Tom said, it's more than the sum of the parts then. It's this, well, wow, the creature hand display. No, and that really turned out great. I, and, and not just to say that because we helped you with the, the, the hand forms and the conservation forms and stuff, but uh, like it's it takes – individual bits and makes it into a collection. Um, and, and I think that's, that's true with tons of stuff like this. You group like stuff together, you give it a little bit of air around each one. So they still have a feeling of importance and you know, you're, you're lucky. I think again, we, we go back to what we were saying before with the star Wars stuff, it's that depth and the ability for people to recognize stuff. You know, you put a Greedo hand in there and people know exactly what that is. Um, you know, and people who who want more of a story, you look at that cave hand and you say like, oh, well, you know what? Before Star Wars, that was actually in uh, 2001. And that was, you know, one of Stuart Freeborn's hands he made for the uh, the apes in the Dawn of Man sequence. And then you added uh, he went and he added the fingernails onto it and reused it again in Star Wars. Like that's there's all of these other layers that come from this one case of random, you know, seemingly random hands. Yeah, like for example, the Rodian hands, you know, like like a Greedo hand in in original tr- in a New Hope, it's basically like like a like a glove, like a rubber glove you you know for washing dishes, but but elongated fingers and suction cups at the end of the fingers, right? It was a really primitive kind of glove like glove that they did, but then for the prequels, they made a whole different kind of Rodian hand. Still have suction cups and so on, but it, it's not like they don't look like suction cups from like a toy dark gun it looks like an alien hand like so the so i have both the prequel and lots of knuckle and anatomy and stuff on there and yeah it's yeah. Like knuckle it looks like real alien hand and they had more time to you know and more advanced to doing it uh, so i have both of those in the same display case it's kind of interesting to point out to people like yeah both of them are rodians 
And uh, but you can see the difference between how they did an original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. Well, I wonder too. That sounds like something that might drive the collecting as well. Like once you have one roadie in hand, and then if another one is available, like are you more driven to get another roadie in hand because now it's kind of like a thing that you have? Yeah, yes and no. I, I, I'm curious, Tom, what you how you think of it. I know both of us have picked up pairs of hands. Like I have a pair of Cantina Band hands, and uh, there's a few that I have pairs of. And that, for me, it's like if the pairs come up opportunistically, great. But once I have one, I'm not really hunting to get the other one per se. But if, but if the right moment came up, yeah, I would complete the pair. But I don't feel like it's incomplete because the case looks pretty amazing just with single hands of different – of the variety of creatures. Well, and, and like it's it's one of those rare times where you've built something new out of that, you know, like there's a lot of people who would obsessively want the other pairs. And I normally would probably go for that. Like I have a um, – I have a few pair of hands for the cantina, uh, two of them paired off with masks, a cantina band guy and the Duros. Um, and then one of them separate, I have a pair of the Rodian hands and displaying them separately. I feel like the pair works nicely in the context of your case, you know, where it's displaying a wide range of species. I actually think the single hands almost work better. Yeah, they almost work better. And, and it's weird because I don't, I generally had a different people, a different taste. I know a lot of people who do display the hands with the mask, and I could do that. I have some masks that match, uh, uh, you know, hands. But uh, I prefer to keep the masks and helmets all displayed together, and then do the hands together. But you know, it's just a taste, individual taste thing. Because uh, like, there's other things I have that go with my masks and helmets that I could put in there. Um, like um, I have like uh, one of my Ewok masks I got from one of the actors in the film, and I have you know an autograph photo with this. A note to me and all that. It's nice. It's nice to display next to each other. But I thought, you know, it sort of takes away from the display to have it there. I like to just have heads, <laughs> the different heads there. And so I have droid heads, masks, and helmets all together, and not the other things that are sort of related accessories and, and artifacts. But other people would, you know, very reasonably do it a different way. Well, and it depends on how much space you have. It depends on the types of setups you have. In my case, where I have a little more room, I, you know, because I have, frankly, a lot less stuff. Um, it's uh, I, I'm able to group the masks and hands and have enough air around them that they don't seem crowded and everything works okay that way. If I had a single case with just the heads in it, I might I might think about grouping the hands separately or doing something like that. I, it's funny though the the debate on this stuff. It is all it's so personal and it's all about like you know yeah what works with your aesthetic, what works with what you how you like to even look at them. Some people. You know, in, in my case, I actually kind of like I set my duros up with the hands uh, horizontal and coming towards the viewer, sort of like they were in the Chronicles photos, which to me is a really nice little thing. It's like a little little, you know, shot of joy every time I see it, because I just remember looking at those masks in the Chronicles and all those. It was our first real look at some of those behind the scenes photos and to connect to that in a display to me is such a great spark. But like I think back to when Power of the Force 2 came out, I remember having – I had a bunch of you know older Kenner stuff on display and I was starting to get some of the newer pieces. And I remember it's pretty early on they came out with the Scout Trooper and Biker uh, the and Speeder Bike kind of combo, right? He was like in a little box and the Scout Trooper came with it. And 
I remember my friend coming over, my friend Tom Potter, who I will, uh, I'll have to tell him. He always begrudges that I don't mention him on all these podcasts. But um, he came over and we're looking and we're trying to figure out where this goes. And I'm like, all of my Power of the Force 2 vehicles I had had on a, on a shelving unit in the closet. All of the figures I had pinned on the wall at the time because they were still on the cards. And we're looking at it and I'm like, well, it's a figure, so it goes on the wall. And he's like, but it's a vehicle, and it goes in the closet. And for like a half hour, we tried to figure out, where does this go? <laughs> and what we should have done was just open it and play with it. So that's just... Yeah, no, it's fun, but it's funny, you know, in, in, on the topic of finding space for stuff, and my wife Pam jo- jokes about this with me all the time because she knows my philosophy is buy the piece, figure out where it's going to go later. Like if you know, <laughs> other people like have a vision of where it's going to go, I'm like, don't let the the size like distract you. Go for the piece, you'll figure it out later, and it always works out. So I have a few pieces that are obnoxiously huge that. At the time I bought them, I had no idea where they were going to go, but I was like, I have to get this thing, and then I'll figure it out. So one is this matte painting that Propster had for several years, um, was, uh, and they eventually decided they were selling it, which was a, a matte painting from the Hoth battle scenes that Incredible. ILM used for the Adat Walkers and Snowspeeder battle. It's the background paintings that you, that you see. A huge thing, though. It's like, I want to say, like, 16 feet wide. Like, it is a massive painting. And... Uh, and it turned out like we built this like extension to our house and that has this had this huge blank wall. And I'm like, well, I know where to put it now. This is where it's going to go. We're going to hang it there. And it's like perfect. It fits there perfectly. We had um, another thing I also got from Prop Store was this. They had in their office – they had two things in their offices for years that I would see there. And I was always telling them like, hey, you ever decide to sell, I'd be very interested in it. I ended up picking up both of them in different times. One of them they sold direct. One they put up in auction. The first one was the Snowspeeder Cannon. So it was basically a life-size Snowspeeder Cannon from Empire, the left cannon of a Snowspeeder. And it's not – you know what I love about that piece, it's just sort of huge and obnoxious. Like diehard Star Wars fans totally know what it is, but everybody else is like, what the hell is that? You know, it's just it's like, you know, metal. It looks like a lamppost. Yeah, lamp, and it's kit bash. So it has like a, a, a carousel slide tray at the end of it. I mean, it's got all these parts like PVC pipe, all these things that they made it out of. I love the piece, but it's like one of those things like the diehard fans get it. No, everyone else does not get it, but I had no place to put it. But we had it at the time, it was our dining room. Now it's sort of a, I would call it the 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 uh, mask and prop blaster room, but uh, <laughs> hanging over the window, we put on the hooks. We put this thing, and, and it was interesting because it was so heavy. And and Propster had some hooks they were using to hang it up in their offices. They sent those, and I used like four hooks, and the thing fell. Actually, oh. <laughs> it was like it was fine. It didn't wasn't damaged, but I was like I had to buy a whole bunch more hooks to make sure this thing stayed up there because it was so heavy and bulky, and, and the balance it wasn't well balanced and weight. So anyway, it was like we found a spot for it, and then the other one that was like that from Propster was the um, Palpatine's couch from the Phantom Menace. So it's funny because in the, they sold it in auction and I, I don't think it had any other bidders. I think it was the only bidder probably because I was the only one crazy enough to want this thing. <laughs> it weighs like six times the weight of a normal couch. Like it's made for a movie. It's thick wood with like thin vinyl over it. So it's not comfortable and it's massive. It's, it's huge couch. And in the auction, they build it as Queen Amidala's couch but it's like they're in Palpatine's office, so actually, technically, it's it's Palpatine's couch. But anyway, <laughs> uh, 
so we got it and I was like, well, I don't have a place for this thing. You know, this is humongous. So we put it in basically what was our dining room, but in the side. And the idea was we have it facing the case that has all the helmets and masks. And I was like, this would be great because this is screen used, you know, prop piece. Uh, it's more like set dressing piece. And uh, people can come over and they can sit on it, just like props are let people sit on it for years when you visit their offices. I'll do the same thing. But what ended up happening is uh, my wife collects stuff herself. She collects like uh, a lot of uh, Funko Pop stuff and she collects Lilo and Stitch stuff. So within like a week, the entire couch was filled with all her collectibles. And so no one's really gotten to sit on it at all. <laughs> Since then, become her display kit, display stand for her stuff. So anyway, I left it like that. But, it, but right now, it's still sitting. I pass by it every day. But it, like at some point, when we have next time we have a party, we'll move some stuff off so people can sit on it. But the world's most expensive Lilo and Stitch display stand. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's funny when I give people tours because, you know, we'll show them all this cool stuff and go, oh, by the way, that's Palpatine's couch that's sitting underneath all that Funko Pop stuff. That's, that's what that is. <laughs> Gee, you know, I, I, one of the things that strikes me in terms of this hobby, uh, as opposed to a lot of others where – if you if you have the money, you can go out and you can pick up the stuff you want, whether it's toys, even vintage toys, until you get into the real, real rarities or the, the prototypes and stuff like that. You know, the stuff's around when you're talking about things that are several of a kind or even one of a kind. There is a degree of patience that you have to have as a prop collector sometimes and there are times where you might be hunting things for a long time or have built connections or relationships with people and you've you know talked about things that that don't come to fruition for years later or trades where you've you know have somebody who's got something in their collection and you have something in your collection and you you have a deal like all right if you're ever part with that you let me know but you know Gus could, can we talk about your C3PO a little bit because i think it kind of ties to that it's a great point that you're raising, which is I think people have this misconception that someone with deep pockets can just come in and put together an amazing Star Wars original prop collection. And I have seen people who dabble in it who do that, but the, the they only get so far. Uh, I, I would argue that opportunity and access is way, way more important than your ability to spend. Now, no question, having lots of money is helpful in this area. No question uh, that, that, you know, especially in recent years as the stuff has gotten higher and higher. But a lot of great pieces have turned up either from other collectors or from direct sources, like people who worked on the films. And a lot of times those are sold not at, you know, I think people are often quoted, you know, not only the auction prices, but the biggest piece in that auction that just got a lot of attention, that price. And, you know, auction's a very special thing, and most props are not sold in auction. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of times with, like, the C-3PO uh, that I've been putting together, I knew, I, you know, I hadn't set, I have a, I have a, I have a 3PO that basically is probably the most complete 3PO outside the Lucasfilm archives, I could probably say with conviction that's probably correct. I mean, basically, I have parts to 3PO, they're not all assembled yet on the same uh, 3PO, but everything but the, the, the right arm from under the shoulder to before the wrist 
and the two shoulder pieces. And that's pretty much it. That's all I'm missing. Like the rest of it, I have 3PO parts. And and Tom is going to help me with it at some point. I, I'm waiting on, there's a couple pieces I know that they're going to be available soon. I'm going to wait to get those. And very soon we'll finally put the whole thing together. But basically what turned up uh, from a friend of ours is, you know, who had, he had the legs of C-3PO, the ones used in, Return of the Jedi when 3PO and R2 fall off the sail barge and you see 3PO's legs kicking, you're like it's it's a screen match, it's exactly those legs that, that they use, you know, when in in uh, the desert scene, you know, when when uh, 3PO falls off the sail barge. And then the mask had come from another collector who got it from somebody who worked on the film in Return of the Jedi. So what I acquired was the mask, the head mask, and then the legs from sort of the waist down. And then in separate finds, I got two different hands, the right and left hands, and I got the left arm, and I got the chest, the front and back of the, the upper torso pieces. And then I also got a couple different auctions and, and sales where I got the Greeblies, like because 3PO has a whole bunch of these, like what they call Greeblies, these little detailed pieces. So now I have basically as complete a 3PO as anyone is ever going to put together um, outside of Lucas. And uh, – I mean, it is breathtaking to see. I mean, it's an amazing piece. And I, when I set out to do it, I didn't intend to find all these things. But a lot of it was through personal contacts. It was like, uh, like you know, a friend sold the original pieces, the first pieces I got. The left arm, someone had tipped me off uh, that Planet Hollywood had a left arm. And and they were, at the, that point, starting to sell things. And by sheer luck, within a year, they came up for auction, a Profiles in History auction, had that left arm from Planet Hollywood. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like the arms are all, you they never turn up. Like the feet and hands turn up once in a while. There's an those, but like, and there've been a couple legs that have turned up, but like, you know, usually just the, like the, the shin or something, but like the arms like almost never come up. And uh, so, yeah, it was really like kind of luck, but it all sort of came together. And now there's like this near complete 3PO. Uh, and, and it's just, just, it's just kind of one of those fun things, but a lot of it, like you could be a big spender and make it known, oh, I want to buy 3PO stuff. You'd never be able to put that together. You would have had to have all those contacts. You would have to do the research and track down the pieces you're looking for. So I think, circling back to what Tom raised, the the access to the, just the opportunity to buy things, which often is through your personal contacts, whether it's fellow collectors or people working on film, that's the most important thing I would say in prop collecting, way more than even the money. Because a lot of prop collectors – aren't rich. I mean, they, they, you know, most, I would say most Star Wars prop collectors aren't wealthy and, but prop collecting is different than like the action figures. Like you aren't going to Walmart every week to buy the latest thing. You're buying like two pieces a year. And oftentimes people sell things from their collection to fund an expensive splurge. So it's just a different kind of collecting. And people think that all the collectors are really wealthy and it's not necessarily the case. They are, you know, they'll have fewer. It's more the less is more kind of philosophy. I have fewer pieces, but they're just so striking. So anyway, um, you know, that's not uncommon. And I, you know, I often talk to collectors who are like, "Man, how do you afford to collect this stuff?" And then you know, you realize that they're probably spending thousands a year on Hasbro toys, which are fine if you love the Hasbro toys. Great, more power to you. But I'm like, thousands a year could buy you some good pieces, you know, and props, you know. And so it's it's all about your priorities, right? If you love the latest toys, go for it. But if you want to splurge on occasion, not very often, not every week, but like once or twice a year, you know, prop collecting can can work for you. 
I, I think the the point that you make about most prop collectors, I, th- I would say the average, you know, sort of uh, prop collector in at least in our group of friends. Yeah. Yes, there are definitely a handful that are, you know, very well off. But I, I think most of them actually tend to be regular folks. I, I always liken it to like the guy who has a, a fancy car that he takes out on the weekends or, he you know, is, he's been working on like, you know. Some people spend 20 grand on having a special extra car and some people buy a monster mask that was in a movie. You know, it's like that's it's just different, different strokes, different folks. Or And even with all those connections, you still had to have the patience on that 3PO to pull that together, because a lot of other people, you know, might not buy something with the forethought of, well, maybe down the road, there's a chance I get these other parts. You know, and and the fact that you've been collecting so long and you did have connections and you did know people who had things gave you that confidence like, oh, well, you know, I know feet and hands sometimes come up. These legs are special. Like that's not going to come up. Let me grab those because then maybe a chance will come up for legs and hands. And then, you know, the arm comes out of nowhere and that's outstanding. And obviously the other parts, you know, head and eyes and whatever the heck else, that's all its own, you know, challenge for sure. But and, and even the Greeblies is a great pickup on him. I, yeah, I'm, that that to me is a really stunning thing that you've pulled together and not something that just anyone could have done and, and definitely not something that couldn't be done without a real degree of patience and, and willingness to kind of wait it out. Yeah, and that's, you raise a great point too, which is part of it's like really, it's people understand, like if you do it long enough, you know what will come around again and what will not. And like you can have high conviction that 3PO hands will come around. There's enough 3PO hands. They actually had 3PO hands from the production that they gave to the fan club president uh, in, in the 80s who who had, she had several. I mean, there's there's ILM people who have the hands. I mean, they, they had extra hands. There were quite a few of them around. So you know, like, those are going to come around. And and so part of it's like recognizing, well, what won't come around? And that's the time to splurge and 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 strike you know that's part of the art i think of prop collecting is knowing you know strike while hot what but you have to know when the right time is because you know there are there are things that you might think oh this will never come up and then next auction another one comes up and so you know and, and not to say there's nothing wrong with that per se it's just that if you're trying to optimize your strategy for picking up things you you generally want to uh you know like i i like to focus on what, what will i never see again and 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 that I really want, and then and then I make some conscious decisions of things I've passed on that I, I come around to later. I might have to spend a little more, but I know I'll be able to find it, you know. And, and but the three PO, yeah, that that it's a lot of patience that goes into doing that. But it will be, you know, once we get the whole thing assembled, it's going to be spectacular, uh, you know, just to have something like that, like because it's just those things they don't exist out there. They I, I, we we believe with never heard of another one really <laughs> full three PO out there. No, and, and like there's some examples with R2, I think, you know, that you could probably point to. Yes, yes. That are, you know, pulled together from different sources or even one or two that are, you know, pretty, pretty all together. But yeah, with 3PO, there's just nothing like that out there that I'm aware of. And that's uh, that that one's just amazing. And it's it's such a great example of that patience. I, I would have to imagine that screen matching all the different 3PO pieces would be an interesting challenge, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I have not screen matched every part of 3PO on mine, but 
but it, I have on at least half of it, the lower half all screen matches. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, you can't, and you get into that kind of case where you're like, okay, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to like for something like the 3PO, I'm, I'm not going to wait to only buy screen match pieces. I'm going to buy things that, you know, were probably screen used. They're from the production, but 3, 3PO stuff's not impossible to screen match. The good thing about 3PO is there's so many different 3PO's they used. Some are weathered, some are shiny, some are, they all have like defects. So there's quite a few pieces that have been matched actually, but I don't, you know, to complete him, the priority is figure out where I can find the pieces. I can always upgrade later if I find one that's even better, better match or something. And I always sell the old one. Like that's always an option. Um, but yeah, but the good thing is in this 3PO is a very high percentage of it's already screen matched, uh, which is, which is awesome. It's bananas. <laughs> I'm just thinking that with 3PO, it is, you brought up kind of an interesting thing is because there's so many different versions of 3PO, like, is that a concern that like you might find the piece you're missing, but it's like the shiny version as opposed to like the, the dirty version? That is a real issue, actually. And Tom and I have talked about because because when Tom offered to help when I get around to finally getting the whole thing and the most of the pieces I have are weathered, but the chess piece is very shiny. So that creates a dilemma, right? Like, what do you do? It looks really weird if you put the shiny, pristine, you know, chess piece on a weathered 3PO. And then, but then you can weather the shiny piece. That's easy. But how do you weather it so you don't damage it? So it's reversible. So that's where you know, you, for someone like Tom who has the skill of doing, you know, his 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 team can do the skill of like weathering it for display. But if ever came the time to reverse it, we could do that. But it, not in a damaging way. That it makes it look consistent with the rest of the costume. But. Um, but like, you know, does, but, but yeah, so that, that sort of solves that problem, but it's a great question. Cause it's like, it's then the, the pieces don't all match. And by the way, the pieces are different in the different films, right? Like the arm is like a thin metal arm. Like the early arms were made of metal. They have plastic hands. In some cases, the Greeblies can be metal and, and plastic. The legs have metal and plastic and fiberglass pieces. So it's like all over the place in the kind like and over the films they changed it the way they've done them. So yeah, so there's no like one way they've done the three PO parts. And so it is from a few the pieces are from a few films, you know, original trilogy films. But uh, but like still like there's even differences there. Uh, but um, to me, I don't care because that's like that's like you know you know, sort of beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> You're at the point of assembling a 3PO. You can't get that picky or like everything has to screen match. It all has to be from empire. It all has to be like, you know, fiberglass pieces. Like you'd be like, you'll never put the thing together. You know? <laughs> so, you know? Yeah. I think some of the ones they've toured, you can't even say that about, you know, it's like, right, right. Therefore probably all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Worst case, you could just have them hold a bunch of Funko pops. <laughs> <laughs> he may end up. He may end up holding Funko Pops, without my, not by my choice, but yeah. yeah, that's 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 always a possibility. <laughs> oh my god! Here, here's here's one last question to kind of kind of wrap it up a little bit there, and it, and it's it's kind of a predictable question, but is there a white whale for you with prop collecting? Is there something that you know is out there? You, aside from 3PO, that you could get, you want to get, can you even say what that would be? Yeah, there definitely is. I don't know, Tom, you probably have some too. 
there's always something you are aware of that you're after. Like I feel, I, I, so before I get into that though, I would say I, I'm definitely very content and feel very fortunate with what I have. If I never picked up another Star Wars prop piece, I could say I did a good job of assembling, you know, what I did. You know, I, I don't feel like there's a gap, like it's, it's lacking some some big thing. But there's always other stuff that would would be interesting, right? There's some I love the Imperial helmets. There's a couple of those that I don't have, like for example the um, Imperial gunner uh, helmet. I love that helmet. Would love to have one of those. You know, there's a couple of them out there. You know, there's there's a couple of helmets like that. There's a rebel the rebel soldier helmets. Um, you know, from a New Hope. Those are cool. I don't have one of those. You know, there's always things like that. I feel like I have pretty good representation of you know of the films of the characters. I, you know, I have pretty, I have like at least one example of, I think of pretty, almost every major character. Um, I would love to find, um, I would love to find a dueling lightsaber from the original trilogy. And I don't know of one outside of Lucas that anyone has. Like, you know, I, I, I know of, of hero sabers, ones of belt sabers that people have. I don't know of, uh, of a dueling lightsaber. There, Tom, you may know somebody who has one, but I, that would be to me an amazing thing to try to find uh no i mean i guess technically brandon has one right like right right with the, with the blade the, you would yes without the blade that's true he has one that was used yeah because his was the return of the jedi yep. luke v2 you know essentially the main saber he carries through the whole film it turns out talk about another screen match i i mean i'll just briefly talk about this one because i know it's out there but uh, brandon from prop store years ago found uh, one of Luke's sabers from Return of the Jedi, and for for years it was always thought of as you know people called it the V two because it it wasn't the pristine hero that you see in the reference books. And you know, after acquiring it, he wound up going through, and because it has all these chips and damage on it, you can screen match it, and it's in like every shot, like it's insane. I think there's only like one or two shots that it's not in. And, and like, that is just like one of those mind blowing things. But the cool thing was that that, that prop started out as Obi-Wan's dueling saber or one of the dueling sabers from the first movie. So it actually had the little motor in the handle and it would have spun the blade around that had the scotch light on it to reflect back at the camera. And so, yeah, very technically that's a dueling saber out there, but I would much rather have what you're talking about, which would be like one where it's got the blade and the scotch light and it still spins and you can play with it. It still spins. Yeah, that's what I had in mind. It's like something like that, which would be unbelievable to find something like that. Yeah, what about you, Tom? What do, or for you, what would you? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, in terms of like like actively looking at, there's not a ton right now. There's There's always some stuff that, you know. You know, people have that maybe you've talked about. Maybe there's some Cantina characters. I have to think if they came up for sale. Yeah, that would be the stuff that would you know certainly certainly move me more than anything on on Star Wars. Anyway, I've I've decided you know knowing you can't have it all, <laughs> um, and knowing you can't even have most. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those where I've just been so focused in my collecting and, and really stuck to almost entirely cantina when it comes to star wars but yeah there's you know that's that's the thing i definitely keep my eyes open for the uh i, I mean you know J jason and gabe like okay money's no object one one prop each from the original trilogy where are you going i think i, I would want a general Medine uh wig and beard 
Yeah, I have a beard. <laughs> oh, do you, do you have that now? I have it now. Oh, yeah, I know you. I own the beard. Yeah, he's, he's got a prosthetic. I don't know if you know the story about the. Oh, they love the story. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I mean. I, I think it's hilarious because his beard is terrible, right? In the film, like you're like, who? When you see the film, you're like, what a bad beard, and it's prosthetic, you know. But I have I have the prosthetic beard from Nadine, which, which a lot of people ask me about. What is that? And they're like, that's Nadine's beard. That's the coolest thing. But yeah, yeah. Our our friend Andy had that for years, and uh, I'm I'm glad to hear it's it's in it's safely in your collection at this point, Gus. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and he traded to me a few years back, but I was very excited that he was willing to part with it because it's just an awesome and and comical piece. To own. All right, so so make sure you lock your doors. Uh, you know, Gabe is going to show up someday trying <laughs> to pilfer that. He's stepping over the uh, the 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 Palpatine throne uh, couch, <laughs> <laughs> weaving behind and in and out of C three PO parts. And uh, moving aside all the the monster hands and heads and masks and helmets and taking Maydean's beard and walking out of your house, tipping his hat to the Death Star like you know like Indy with the idol, you know like yeah. I, I want to put it on. <laughs> <laughs> Can I? It's it's is it screen used? I don't know. One of Lucas's plaid shirts. Oh, that's a great one. <laughs> that's outstanding. Okay, wait. I I know which one you want too. You want the red and white checkered one that he wore when he was riding on the dewback in in the, that one photo from the, the outside the cantina. If we can screen match it, especially to something New Hope, yeah. I would say yes. One of Lucas's shirts from a New Hope. There's a couple of good shots of him like like giving Maria de Aragon direction and stuff. On set, or like putting the oh gosh, when he's putting the the lube on on Greedo's mouth to give it the yeah. you know the Vaseline on on the mouth uh, in that one shot, you know you got a pretty clear shot of his shirt. I'll bet you could you could match up some patterning on that or something. Yeah, yeah. that that would that would be mine. But I, nothing tops the mating beard, and literally, I felt like my heart stopped when when you revealed that you have that there. Yeah, uh, the, I love the Lucas shirt thing. I was just was going through my head. I was like, "Does Mopop have one?" Well, they have flannel shirts, but I think they're Cobain's. But uh, Cobain. <laughs> different kind of flannel. Yeah, different kind of flannel. But yeah, yeah, like somebody made him cool. Like, <laughs> but uh, but but uh, but yeah, no, it'd be cool. Like a George Lucas shirt that 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 was seen in behind the scenes stuff. That would be pretty pretty freaking awesome. Right? Yeah, that's actually you know you know what, Jason, you might have won this one. I think that might be the the best out of all of these. Well, while riffing on it, like the boom mic guy with the pink shorts, like talking about the pink shorts would be an amazing. That would be like a great great behind the scenes piece. Amazing. George Lucas might trade you a shirt for the Death Star. <laughs> yeah, he'd probably be willing to. I wouldn't be willing to, but <laughs> he was actually offered the Death Star uh, before I had it. The guys, the only other people that had been offered the Death Star uh, were was George Lucas. I mean, the guys who I bought it from offered it to him a, a couple of years before they offered it to me, and he he they didn't work out anything. He didn't want to 
you know, pay a lot for it. And so it didn't happen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I'm, my, my understanding is that this is attitude and this is not from any inside knowledge. This is actually outside knowledge. I think I heard uh, Mandel and, and Brian Condal talking about this on their podcast actually, but that he has that feeling of like, well, I used to own it. I don't want to pay to buy it. You know? <laughs> and, and I, I kind of get that. That's true. He, he paid a lot for it the first time. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I think that was, that might've been part of it. They were offered like, you know, like the guys who had the desk were offered things like autographed photos and stuff. And they were like, yeah, no way. <laughs> that wasn't enough. But they, you know, they, they, they had a, they, they had a cash offer in mind, but he was at the time wasn't interested. I, my understanding is, and I don't know this firsthand, but I just heard rumor mill that he has bought, gone back and bought other things since. But um, at the time, he wasn't acquiring stuff from the films. But the other thing is that it wasn't – I mean, the, the piece was thrown away. But it's not even clear in the first movie he ever actually owned any of the stuff, right? Because it was uh, – the film was um, – 20th Century Fox was paying you know, for having everything made. Like, you know, so, so I think – and, you know, a lot of the title on this stuff gets a topic for another day, probably, but gets very murky on these things. But he, whereas the later films, he self-funded the, you know, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and then on. Right. Yeah. Then it's, it's much more clearly his. Yeah. But but I think in the case of A New Hope, he kept a bunch of pieces. But I don't know if the, he actually owned them per se. I think the studio might have owned them. But anyway, the number of the pieces that got out were you know gifted to people, thrown away, all that kind of stuff. That's how they got into circulation. Well, I, this has just been absolutely fascinating. Been it's riveting, riveting conversation. I, I told you we could pull a props podcast out of our butts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, out of our butts is probably a good description. (laughs) (laughs) Prop collecting out of our butts. It's only a laser sword fight. Don't be scared. It's only the Death Star destroying another world. Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present... Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. These last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. All right, everybody. 
guess what? Apple Podcast Reviews. When you get done listening to this, we would love it if you would go over there, write something nice. If you listen on Apple, some more people can find Blast Points when they're looking for Star Wars podcasts. And if you listen on Spotify, leave us a five-star review over there, too. And check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com, and make sure you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you're a member of the Blast Points Super Chill Group. And we got the Blast Points Army on Patreon, where we're overdue for some new stuff, which will be coming very, very soon. So everyone stay tuned with that. I'll jump in real quick. Yeah, for me, I mean, just go to TomSpinaDesigns.com or RegalRobot.com and follow at TomSpinaDesigns and at RegalRobot pretty much everywhere. Uh, in particular, our YouTube channel is is really good for your listeners on both companies because we've been doing uh, – I've been doing these interviews with uh, old ILM folks and going really – super super in-depth on on creatures that were made uh for return of the jedi and all the maquettes that they worked on and things like that um it's a lot of fun and for your listenership boy is that the place to be um so uh yeah follow us there follow us on facebook instagram twitter pinterest all of that stuff as well and uh and you know just yeah thanks for for having me on yet again and uh i'm so happy that I could uh, bring Gus with me this time and we got to have such a, a wonderful, fun chat. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for inviting me on. I mean, I think for me, like if you want to follow, like I've had uh, a few places you could go. Star Wars Collectors Archive, which I started with some friends in 94. It was the first collecting website on the internet. It's theswca.com. And uh, it's important to put the SWCA. If you just do SWCA.com, I think that's like Smith and Wesson Collectors Association. So <laughs> a little different. So you're like into Clint Eastwood's guns and stuff like, yeah, it's probably great, but like not, if you're into Star Wars, you're not going to have fun there. But the SWCA.com, you can catch me at Celebration also, uh, Star Wars Celebration, you know, uh, emceeing and, and presenting in the collecting track uh, at the collector stage of Celebration. And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Toys R Gus on Instagram. I, I like to post a lot of prop stuff on Instagram, but it's, it's it'll be any Star Wars collect. It's generally all about Star Wars collecting on 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 Instagram for me. It's out, it's outstanding and worth following. And and that theswca.com is literally going back to '94. I, I discovered it luckily very very early, and it it is a big thing that helped shape me as a Star Wars collector. If you have never been there. You can literally probably spend days and days and days just going through the content there. It's insane. It's so good. And if if you have any interest in things like, you know, props and stuff like that, it's great. If you if for me, I love it for the toy prototypes and the unproduced toys. I I can't get enough of seeing that stuff. And uh, and it's a really, really great place to see that. So don't miss it. If you haven't been there and you're listening Stop the podcast. Go like all of my stuff, but then go to Gus's website. And uh. <laughs> yeah, and uh, by the way, on that, yeah, like, and if you guys ever wanted to have a discussion about that, like, it's one of the things my friends and I did a long time ago was like meet hundreds of Kenner people, and I have I have a lot of a lot of unproduced toys, things that Kenner considered in the vintage years that they never made, and it's one of my favorite areas of collecting. It's it's just fun because it's like you're familiar with all the vintage toys, but then wow, they were going to make Emperor Strikes Back 12-inch action figures, you know, like, and, and, and then to, you know, so I, I spent a number of years really hunting down that stuff, so I have quite a lot of that stuff. Happy to talk about it some other time if you want. 
I would love to do that show. I yeah, I think it's like discovering a new scene in a movie, you know, that you've known forever, and then it's just like, what they did that too? Like, oh, love it. Yeah, I think that sounds like a plan. We're gonna have to do this again because I don't know. We we talk about like some Mungo beef head or something. We gotta. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. Mungo beef head. That's a good, good, uh, good call. Like good uh, <laughs> unproduced toy concept reference. This has been amazing. Thank you, Tom, so much once again. Thank you, Gus, so much for joining us. And thank you all so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. We covered a lot of stuff. Was there hmm, kind of meandered all over? But I don't know if there are any other things you guys wanted to hear about. Gus, Gus is like, hey, do, do I get yeah. to go <laughs> home ever? Like, can I? <laughs> do we just do this forever now? I could talk for hours on this. There's so much to talk about in pop. Like, they, like yeah, uh, yeah, same. Well, well, it's funny when they asked me, like, you know, do you have ideas for for a show that wouldn't be part of this? You know, wouldn't put us against the the whole SAG thing. I was like. You know, I, I think I rattled off like ten options within just collecting. You know, and, and really, like, like folk, like that—that's not even scratching the surface. And like, I, I was like, any one of those we could do three hours on. Like, it's just you know that easy. And even with the prop stuff, I think we've again, like, this is this has been very cursory. There's so much more to discuss on it, and and yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe there's some time where where uh, Gus, if you have have some more spare time and want to hang out some more, we can uh, we can have another chat like this and dig into some other topics. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd be I'd be happy to, to uh, you know come back to it another time as long as there's no banjo playing. I'm I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way to bring it around. <laughs> May the force be with you.